the next couple of months are going to be really hard. We're going to see some more of our favorite bars and restaurants close. It's going to it's going to be a gut punch. Uh, but I, I, I'm pretty optimistic on 2021. I think the economy is going to come back faster than expected. Hello, and welcome to today's episode of Invest in the West, where we talk about investment strategies and real estate-related topics in the western part of the United States. I'm Matt Williams, and here with my co-host, Nicholas Cook. Our guest today is Josh Lehner, and he is an economist with the state of Oregon, also an instructor at Willamette University. He's joined us today to discuss the economic position we find ourselves in in the good year 2020 hopefully shed some light on the shifts that we've seen and maybe still what there is coming up. Josh, thanks very much for being here with us. Uh, Welcome. Please tell us a bit about yourself and how you got into economics. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. You know, in in our office, we do the economic and revenue forecasting for the state. Um, You know, we we don't necessarily tell the governor and the legislature how to spend the money, uh, but we tell them how much we think they'll have to spend. And then it's up to the elected officials to, you know, how much goes to schools or to healthcare or to roads and and all that sort of stuff. Um, And and really got into this, just the research aspect of it, being into... um, you know, the data and underlying information and, and trying to model what we think uh, people will do. And then, of course, how much income they'll earn and, and, and the like. And it's a lot of fascinating stuff. And, and fortunately, I, I get to be able to stick my nose into a lot of different areas that I find interesting, whether it's, you know, researching um, the startup craft brewery scene that we've seen in recent decades in Oregon or population growth and migration patterns and who's moving and all that sort of stuff. You know, there's, there's a lot of really fascinating data topics out there, at least for, um, you know, people that have the same disease that I do of, of, of wanting to get into the nitty gritty of the numbers. And so I uh, feel pretty fortunate to have the job I do and I get to do a lot of fun stuff. That's great. I mean, it is interesting. You have to have a uh, inquisitive mind because data is data, right? Um, but how you interpret that or looking for trends or things that you find interesting, elements of that that you find interesting. It's certainly um, something that for some people is a, a, a great niche and uh, is important to them. And for other people, they wouldn't touch it with a 10-foot pole. So um, so how, how did you get into making this your career? Is this something you've always wanted to do or is it something you kind of fell into or was it just kind of your love of, of uh, digesting those stats? Oh, it's it's been a it's been a little bit of a winding road, um, you know, from starting out in engineering to realizing pretty quickly that that wasn't for me. You know, thermodynamics and the tilt of a road when you're putting the bankman in on a on an off ramp and that sort of stuff, you know, that really didn't do it for me. Uh, and so I was I was pecking around a bunch of different courses in undergraduate um, and stumbled across economics. It has a lot of math in it, which is something I, I you know one of my strong suits. Uh, and, and it just kind of fell in love with it and, and then just continued from there, got into some research positions, um, lower level junior research positions um, and, and realized that this was something I was more interested in. So I went back to grad school. And then from there, I, I, I stepped into a temporary position with the state doing what I'm doing now. Uh, and then just kind of they haven't got rid of me yet. Nice. Well, yeah, I'm sure 2020 has really um, put a lot on your plate. Just everyone asked asking you what's going to happen. I mean, obviously, when you're looking at trying to project or forecast what's going to happen um, in the economy, it can feel like a lot of pressure at times, I'm sure. But let's dig into it a little bit here. 2020 has been really nuts for all of us. It really kind of started 
you know, technically speaking from an economic perspective, I think it started back in March and it's been somewhat of a roller coaster, um, you know, what we can do, what we can't do, what to expect, um, what's going to happen with the economy. Can you think back for a minute and just tell me what economists were saying or projecting when this thing first hit? What was going through your mind and maybe some of your colleagues' minds as well? I, I think it took it took a few weeks um, to really wrap our head around it, right? Because uh, we were still talking about how strong the economy was and, and we're measuring all these really big improvements that we had seen uh, because the previous economic expansion that went from the summer of 2009 all the way up until February of 2020, um, not only was it the longest economic expansion on record in the United States' history, um, you know, it had really started to deliver benefits for the typical household and certainly for lower income workers. We're starting to see wage gains uh, in a strong economy and the like, which is which is really something we hadn't seen in about 20 years. Uh, and so, uh, you know, we're still trying to digest and figure out what does this full employment economy look like? What do we think it's going to look like over the next few years? And then really out of nowhere, um, here comes this pandemic. Um, the first couple weeks here in Oregon or across the United States, for that matter, um, were, were really catastrophic. The only information we had was this tidal wave of people filing for unemployment insurance, right? They had been laid off. And, and you know, the vast majority of them thought it would be a temporary layoff. Of course, as it's gone on, a lot of those have been permanent. But, but at first, it was just uh, historic, historically large shocks um, to the economy that had nothing to do with the economy. It's entirely a public health thing. And so, um, just trying to come to grips with that in March and in April was was really challenging. And I, to be honest, I think a lot of us economists overdid it. We thought, you know, things would be so much worse than they are now. Things aren't great, but we thought they'd be a lot worse um, in large part because that first shock was so large. So now that they that we've had some time to kind of re- recalibrate and the dust is starting to kind of settle, what looking back on it, what what surprised you and what adjustments did you see happen from investors, consumers, businesses? Uh, within this COVID uh, pandemic, what what surprised you about that? Two things. First of all, um, would be federal policy, um, right? Uh, the the federal government stepped in with the CARES Act, um, the two point some odd trillion dollars of federal relief uh, in terms of the recovery rebates, the twelve hundred dollars per person, the six hundred dollars a week unemployment insurance benefits, expanded unemployment insurance benefits, and then the Paycheck Protection Program uh, for small businesses being the biggest component of that. Um, you know, I, I think the swiftness with which that occurred uh, is pretty unprecedented, and the size of it, the magnitude of it, um, really plugged that gap. And I think that was underappreciated at the time. I know I underappreciated it. The, obviously, they acted fairly quickly for a congressional timeline. Uh, but the impact of that is really what tied it over the economy. And so since then, all the economic news has been, uh, you know, encouraging and above expectations really since April or May. Uh, and I think a lot of it has to do with the swiftness and the size of that federal aid. Uh, and then the other component tied in with that is incomes are doing all right uh, because of the federal assistance. Um, just consumer behavior, uh, the willingness or the wanting to go back out and resume normal activities has also really driven a lot of the, you know, the activity and, and people are just kind of, I don't know if it's cabin fever or what, um, or just the social nature of human, human beings. Um, that has also led to a lot better economic situation than, than you would have thought, given we have a, a pandemic that's, you know, in full rage right now, even though the vaccines have started. 
Hey, uh, Josh, you know, I think that's, um, you know, definitely makes a lot of sense in terms of, you know, the federal response was was incredibly swift. Obviously, it's in some ways been somewhat controversial just because of, you know, how PPP money was dispersed to businesses. You know, there hasn't really been, you know, an extension of the extra unemployment uh, amounts that the federal government was paying out. I mean, I guess I have a couple questions kind of just related to that to get your perspective on. Like one, you know, is... You know, do you think that as we kind of continue forward with, you know, COVID not necessarily leaving us anytime soon, that another round of PPP is necessary? And then my other kind of question kind of relates to your perspective on, you know, do you think some of the consequences um, may just be still buried beneath the surface? Like we have a national eviction moratorium, right? So it's really hard to understand, you know, how that's going to affect the economy when that lifts. Um, and it's also hard to see how, you know, the market would respond if you had people who, in some cases, you know, if they were making less than $60,000 a year, they were making more on unemployment, which, you know, obviously impacted the economy. So I realize that's a lot to kind of unpack, but I was just curious if you maybe had some thoughts on those those ideas. Yes, I think, you know, those are very interesting questions, and, and we don't have information to answer all of them really well. I think on the PPP side, um, the fact that it was, you know, they got it out as quickly as they could, which means they relied on the existing banking relationships um, that a lot of businesses have. And we know a lot didn't have existing business, you know, banking relationships. So they're trying to apply for a new program um, through banks or credit unions that they'd never worked with before. So there's a lot of challenges associated with that. Um, I do think there's a little bit of PPP shaming that goes on in terms of, well, this person applied for it, even though their business was fine, they didn't need it or something like that. I think, I think that is way overdone and overblown, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. We're, we're in a, we're in a global pandemic and a, a severe shock to the economy. I don't think we should blame anyone for, for trying to get their hands on some assistance that would tide them over even for just a couple of months, which is what it was really designed to do. Um, and so, so I think there's things we could learn from that and hopefully the next, the next, problem that arises, we'll have a better administration or distribution of funds. I do think we need more, um, particularly as we get uh, over the next couple of months. And to the broader point about uh, workers being impacted and the like, I really think, you know, the the CARES Act uh, tidied everything over through maybe Halloween. Some research from uh, J.P. Morgan Chase and some research out of the, I think, the Federal Reserve Bank of New York um, showed that households and laid off workers actually saved a decent amount of that extra um, unemployment insurance. And so they built up a stash of cushion of savings throughout the summer. And so then it ended at the end of July. Uh, and then they started drawing down that savings. But probably around October into November, it's kind of been exhausted. And so we're starting to see um, the needs really pick up a little bit here in December. December, to be honest, based on available data. Uh, is really the first month where we've seen delinquencies on rent payments and the like start to pick up. They hadn't been at all uh, over the course of 2020, at least if you look at the total data. I'm sure individual investors or property owners, you know, their patterns differ considerably based upon their individual individual renters. Um, but in the aggregate statistics nationally and, and across the states, uh, it was only really been in the last month or so. And so um, I think the next couple of months economically are going to be really challenging. As people pull back with the, with the pandemic in full bloom, in full bloom uh, and, and we're scared to go out, go out to eat, even to pick up food just because of the, the virus. Uh, and then, of course, all that income support is basically fully drained at this point for, for our lowest income neighbors and, and friends. 
Yeah. No, and I think that makes uh, sense. And that kind of mirrors, you know, to some degree what we're seeing. I mean, we, you know, I'm in the business where we do property management. And so we you know, are managing residential multifamily assets. And we've definitely seen the delinquency ri- level rise in terms of rent payments, you know, as time has gone on with it accelerating, you know, kind of in the fall and early winter here. Um, because back in, you know, probably May, you know, we were probably seeing in our portfolio maybe 3 to 5% delinquency which was more than we normally see, but it was surprisingly low. And now that's starting to certainly tick up and that trend's been kind of nonstop. And that probably has to do too with, I would imagine, you know, Congress being more flexible with the, um, you know, utilization timeframe rather rather than it just being, you know, that, you know, first, I think it was, you know, eight weeks or something like that. And then they expanded that. So that certainly helped out. But yeah, no, thanks for your, your comments on that. That was definitely, definitely interesting. Josh, you wrote an article called The Urban-Rural Divide Has Shrunk in 2020. I saw that on the, uh, the Oregon website. Can you talk about that a bit and the implications it has on the economy and, and possibly real estate? I think a lot of that has to do with the nature of our urban economies and our, and our largest metropolitan areas. Um, I think it's important to point, point out that in most cycles, um, you know, our rural areas lag behind. Um, they... They maybe they they drop down, um, maybe proportionately with some of the the, the cities and the urban areas, uh, and then they see slower growth moving forward. And that when they see losses, uh, sometimes our rural communities don't rebound because there's not the underlying consumer demand, there's not the underlying population growth or, or things like that to kind of prop them back up. Whereas um, our, our cities and our urban economies more broadly are much more diversified. Plus, they have that population growth at least at least certainly in the western half of the United States, that's growing with population. And so um, that is really propels them to stronger growth over the entire cycle. Cities are also home to most of the professional business services, the professional white-collar office-based jobs that have been growing uh, among the fastest sectors in the economy for a couple decades at this point. Um, you know, those are also predominantly located in our urban cities, in our urban areas. And so uh, a lot of this, this, this dynamic um, has been flipped on its head this time, where our rural economies uh, have maybe opened up economically a little bit faster uh, because they haven't had the cases or they don't have some of the same restrictions given their population size and the like. And whether that's the correct thing from a public health perspective or not, I, I don't want to say yes or no. We do know that the COVID cases are much higher in a lot of rural areas of the country today than they are in the urban areas, which is flipped from what it was back in the spring. Uh, so, so I, I don't want to speculate too hard on the, the public health side of things, but um, you know the economics of it are, are that the rural areas are doing better, and I think part of that has to do with the urban areas are being weighed down for all those things that have been big boosts to our urban economies in recent decades. Things like business travel, tourism more broadly, uh, when it comes to all those office-based jobs, right? That, that's all kind of gone right now. Those workers are not commuting into downtowns. They're not commuting in office parks and traditional job centers like they used to, which then means all of the people that were serving the lunch crowd and all those little boutique retail stores that relied on foot traffic during the day and the like, right? They're all really struggling in our in our job centers around around the country and around the state. Uh, and, and, and of course, business travel is next to nothing this year. And so those things all really weigh on the urban areas much more than on the rural areas. And so even though the vast majority of those office workers still have their job. They're still getting their paycheck. Their incomes are still intact. Uh, they're just doing it from home more. And so that spending is probably going to be at the neighborhood 
fast food place where you can drive through and pick up some food as opposed to, um, you know, going out to happy hour with your colleagues after work. Makes sense. I mean, I know I definitely miss going out for happy hour, but, um, you know, it, yeah, you know, the whole world is changing. And, you know, I guess I want to look at a couple things from a macro perspective here. Um, you know, one of the things I've always heard in real estate is you want to you want to invest with the demographics. And I think, you know, because of COVID, people are rethinking density uh, to some degree, maybe not necessarily city developers or the city itself, but certainly, um, you know, the resident base or ownership base. Um, and they're also, you know, looking at, um, you know, wanting to have potentially more space. So, you know, investors, you know, their job is to kind of meet the market, you know, where it's at, or at least certainly if they're if they're lucky enough to where it's headed. Um, do you see any sort of um, early signs in terms of migration patterns in the West? Do you see people leaving some states more and, and, and um, you know, going to other ones that is kind of maybe a consequence of this pandemic? That's a really hard thing to answer given the available data we have. Um, it takes a long time. We really rely on census data. Um, the American Community Survey comes out once a year to get the mm-hmm. characteristics of the moves, right? Who moved, you know, what was their educational attainment, their age, their income, all that sort of stuff. Uh, and, and we just got 2019 data in September, right? It comes out in September of every year. So before we get to the 2020 data, you know, we're still, we're still nine months out from that. Uh, and, and so it'll be a while before we can draw the characteristics of it. I do think we'll see, it, it's it's really hard to tell um, because we have a couple things going on now. We have uh, traditionally people kind of hunker down in a recession. People, the vast majority of people move for job opportunities, right? That's really the main reason, either because they have a job in a different location or because they want to search for a job in a different location. Uh, And so in a recession, when job opportunities dry up, um, migration overall slows down. That's the traditional recessionary dynamic. And so any pandemic-related migration is going to have to be strong enough to offset this normal pattern to really be able to see it in the numbers, right? And and, and so um, I think we'll see it in some locations, potentially. Um, Some of the West, uh, really scenic areas of the West have seen really, really strong home sales. When you talk about, you know, Bend and Truckee and Missoula and some of these so-called Zoom towns, right? The home sales are up 15%. Uh, and we know a 15% rise in home sales in the last six months uh, is not about local demand. That's not just people saying trying to switch from renters to ownership. A lot of external demand to get to 15% growth in home sales. Uh, and so I think we'll see certainly see some of that. I think the broader question is, will people move to more far-flung areas uh, if they're allowed to work remotely on a permanent basis? Or were we just going to simply double down on all these scenic, beautiful places and, and just pile into them more, driving up driving up the home prices to a greater degree? Because we already know they're good cities. They have scenic recreational opportunities and all that sort of stuff. Well, that makes sense. And I mean, I, I'm not surprised to hear about that 15% kind of bump. I mean, I think that, you know, like you said, the people that had the ability to work remotely, um, you know, now have some more mobility options than they previously had. And, you know, an organization that may have thought about going you know, more remote over a decade, you know, did it over 10 months instead of, um, you know, maybe the original plan. So it'll be really interesting to see, um, you know, there's obviously a lot of other factors that contribute to that, right? There's the politics of things, there's taxes, there's a lot of influencing factors. So it'd be interesting to see what, 
you know, ultimately are those drivers. But, you know, sticking with kind of that larger um, focal point and to kind of one of the points you made earlier in terms of some of the economic news being better than expected, um, what, what type of like GDP growth from Western states are you seeing or expecting as we kind of pull out of 2020? Are there any winners, you know, that are doing much, much better or, um, you know, is it, are you surprised by the information you're seeing? Like what, what can you say about the, the productivity of those economies? I think, you know, it's going to largely the faster growth we see in the West um, is is due to the population growth. It's not so much about our local industrial structure that really drive the gains. I mean, in, in say, Oregon, for example, um, with Intel and the high tech manufacturers, you know, the semiconductor industry that's really clustered in the Portland region. That drives better productivity, better GDP growth from an industrial structure perspective up in Washington certainly with the e-commerce, Amazon and, and, and the like, and the Boeing um, aerospace. And those things can drive some productivity gains that you don't get elsewhere in the country or only in certain locations. But the broader strength is, is really tied to uh, population growth and migration. Um, maybe not in Utah. Utah seems to have higher birth rates and larger families, uh, certainly. But the rest of the Western Surprise. states really rely on that in-migration from from, from the rest of the country. Uh, and, and that's really what drives overall faster income, jobs, and GDP growth. And so um, to the extent that, that continues, as is expected, uh, I expect the numbers to be, continue to look good in, in, in the Western states as compared to the rest of the country. Um, and, and I think for 2021, I think whatever GDP forecast you're looking at right now, it's going to come in higher than that. I, I, I feel fairly confident saying that as a blanket statement. Uh, whatever you have, I think it's going to come in higher. I'm, I'm pretty optimistic about 2021. I think all the news we're getting on the pandemic front, the vaccines and the production of them and the distribution is is all happening much faster than early anticipated. And we've seen that cabin fever is real. People want to get out and resume activities. They want to go on vacations. They want to get on an airplane. They want to go out to eat. Uh, and so when it is, even when it's reasonably safe to do so, I don't, obviously Americans aren't going to wait for the all clear, but it, when it looks like the all clear is coming in a couple of months, I think they're all going to pile back out. And so I think, I think the 2021 numbers are going to look um, really, really good. But of course it's coming off of a, a bad year. Yeah, another thing that, you know, is kind of an interesting trend that we're seeing in the West Coast in particular, and when I say that, I'm really thinking about, you know, Washington, Oregon, California, um, you know, there's this trend towards, you know, higher taxation, um, and we're seeing a lot of new taxes going into effect this year or coming year in 2021, you know, Oregon's got its fair share of those, Um you know, I realize you may want to plead the fifth to some degree if you're talking about Oregon here, but, you know, can you speak to the impact that the increasing tax environment, you know, will have on, you know, some of these economies if it's creating really a new competitive disadvantage or if you see that it maybe isn't going to move the needle much? Um, can you maybe comment on that? Yeah, I think it's important to keep in mind um, the level of service you're getting for the taxes you pay. Uh, and, and, and so that's really what the trade-off is. And, and we have we have high-tax jurisdictions that also should be providing high levels of service. And we have low-tax jurisdictions that are providing low levels of service and the like. And so people can sort themselves based upon their, their preferences and the like. I think the real thing to watch is, is jobs. If jobs are relocating or not even relocating is pretty rare, um, but if jobs are just not being created in some locations, um, 
in part due to tax policy, then that would be the ultimate concern. Uh, because again, people follow the jobs. And so if the jobs are all going to Nevada or Texas or whatever the case may be, um, then that's something to, to keep in mind. Um, but but it's rare that you would see a tax increase lead to an exodus or a large enough out-migration to really move the needle. Um, that doesn't mean that hasn't happened a few times historically, but I, I think that's something to keep in mind is that taxes are, you know, typically third or fourth on the list in terms of business location decisions, right? You want to have, um, you want to have the right parcel, the right property, the right, the right infrastructure. You want to have uh, the late, the, the workforce is the, is the key one, right? People, people will locate in San Francisco, or at least they had been prior to 2020 uh, because that's where the workforce was for a lot of software and, and, and tech development. They're willing to pay whatever the taxes are, whatever the wages are, whatever the rents are, because that's where the workers are. And so uh, it's really that workforce component that's typically first on a lot of business decisions um, and, and taxes are up there, but they're not they're not usually the deciding factor um, that that leads to some of these discussions. Yeah, and that makes sense. I mean, it just it's interesting to see things like, you know, you know, Oracle talk about leaving California with, you know, Tesla and Oregon, you have you know, the cat tax. And I mean, I've talked to a lot of people, business owners that, you know, have high concerns about that. And it kind of compounds onto a you know, poor timing at the same time uh, with, you know, what's happening in the economy. But, you know, obviously jobs is certainly an interesting indicator and, you know, makes sense as something that you would look at. I, I always wonder about like, you know, what jobs, you know, or what entrepreneurs may have not moved forward um, with something because of the environment. But I can see that being a really good indicator. I was just curious if, um, if you saw any sort of trends and it sounds like that's not the primary driver, which um, it's probably good for some of the, the West Coast states that have started to you know, increase that uh, tax rate. That's right. And, and, and I think it depends upon the different types of taxation, right? There's um, on the business side of thing, there's really not that much difference across states. Now, the taxes come in different forms, whether they're income taxes or gross receipts taxes or sales, you know, like you can tax in a lot of different forms. Uh, in a lot of the Western states, the smaller Western states, be it Idaho, Montana, Arizona, even Utah, right? They have higher overall business taxes than Oregon and Washington and, and maybe even California, right? Um, whereas those those West Coast states have higher personal income taxes and the like. So, so the, the taxes are more, uh, the, the burden largely falls more on the individuals than it does on the businesses, which is maybe flipped on some of those other Western states. And so, uh, yeah, you have to look at the whole picture. How much are you paying for your car registration at the DMV and all that, all that sort of stuff. Um, I think the variation uh, across states uh, at that total taxation level isn't really as dramatic as it is if you look at, say, income taxes. But income taxes uh, matter a whole lot more to very high income folks than they do to um, your average worker. I think it's an interesting um perspective there to certainly say, okay, well, what do you get for your money, right? I mean, a majority of the folks that I uh, come across, clients, friends, uh, colleagues, you know, they're saying, okay, uh, <laughs> I wouldn't have a problem paying X tax if I saw a result. And so I think that one of the tricks that, um, you know, we get into, or, or maybe not a trick, uh, let's call it a uh, pattern of thought. So the pattern of thought that we get into sometimes is, I would be happy to pay it if only I knew. And so if you call it an education tax and the education system doesn't improve, you're concerned, right? If we have a homeless tax, but every time you get on the freeway, you see lines and lines and lines of homeless encampments instead of the, 
you know, bike path that you used to ride on. I think that sometimes that can be a little bit tricky. Um, it would be better, I think, if we just had a, look, this is the overall cost of living the way that you want to live in Oregon or in Idaho or in Montana. Um, because I, I think, you know, what you're saying is kind of, uh, is very uh, insightful in that you um, can look at it and and what do you get for your money? And at this, every state has its own budget. But so tell me a little bit. I mean, obviously, we, the three of us, uh, may have a little bit of a bias, but the the Western United States are an attractive feature. So tell me, uh, from an economic perspective, what is it about the Western United States that has been attractive in you know uh, the last ten years, fifteen years? You see the the population growth. You see the um, uh, number of individuals that are just are, are moving out here. What's attractive about the Western U United States for folks that aren't there originally? You know, I still think a little bit of it um, is is the same pattern that's been going on for a couple hundred years, right? With the just the land of opportunity, as cliche as that is, you know, as as a kid myself growing up on the plains, right? You know, just seeing pictures of what the ocean looks like. I mean, like as is, is, is silly as this sounds, I think that still holds, that still holds value. Um, you know, my, my wife, she's from the Northwest. She likes to joke that, you know, I slowly completed the Oregon Trail over my life. And that's true, right? I, I started in Oklahoma and Kansas <laughs> and Colorado and then here. And so, um, you know, I think a lot of that pattern is still, is still there. It's, it, it's a little bit of of, of the unknown, uh, the the history of the West is still young, um, even much younger than on the East Coast, where things, you know, um, some of the first settlements were what in the 1500s, uh, which didn't really. There was some of that out west coming coming up from the south, of course. But I, I think some of that still holds, as cliche as it is. And so, um, it's it's the physical beauty of the Western states, um, the mountain ranges, the valleys, obviously. Um, the, the rainforest like, you know, is a really attractive place to be. Even if you're not really into outdoor recreation, people are still into looking at places that look nice. Uh, and, and I think some of that um, is a key component to it. Uh, and then, of course, job opportunities. And so if you get enough place, enough people um, moving to the same place or enough job opportunities that attract the migrants, that really kind of drives the overall growth. Uh, we've seen that across all of the metropolitan areas in the West in, in recent decades. Obviously, it's Denver and Salt Lake and Portland and Seattle. Uh, Boise seen some of the strongest growth in the entire country, uh, but also the secondary metropolitan areas. So we're, you're talking Colorado Springs, you're talking uh, Ogden, you're talking uh, Salem and Spokane and places like that have also seen really good economic growth, probably partly uh, because A, people don't always want to live in the biggest city and B, housing affordability might push them uh, to some of these secondary metros where it's just a little bit more affordable, not 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 super affordable, but it's a little bit better than in some of the larger cities. So how, how do economists look at the real estate market? Is it as an economic indicator of what's to come, uh, what the economy is doing, or is it the other way around? How does, I guess my question is, is uh, from an economic perspective, are we looking for telltale signs in real estate or is real estate a derivative of, of what our economy is doing? It's both, right? It, 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 up until the last cycle with the housing bubble and bust, actually, it, through the bust, it was still the, a leading indicator. Housing has res, new, it's called residential investment in the GDP data. It's basically new construction. Um, the value of the products that you're building, um, new products, uh, is a component of GDP. 
And up until the recovery in 2009, 10, 11, um, you know, G- real estate had been one of the best leading indicators for the overall economy. Part of that is because it's an interest rate interest rate sensitive sector. Uh, You know, historically, the Federal Reserve was raising interest rates ahead of a recession because inflation was creeping up and they wanted to head off inflation and keep it uh, from going up. And so they would raise interest rates to cool the economy. And so if you have an interest rate sensitive sector like housing, um, excuse me, then then the, the, that increase in interest rates, you know, the year or two prior to the onset of a recession uh, would cool housing. And so housing would start to taper off Ahead of ahead of the overall economy, and so that was one reason. And then, uh, of course, on the flip side, uh, when inflation had subsided in past business cycles, the Federal Reserve would start cutting interest rates, and that would revive housing ahead of the overall economy. And I think that pattern generally held up through maybe 2007, 2008. And of course, um, the last cycle was a little bit different because we had the bubble bursting and the the indebted households. We took up, you know had too much household debt for our current level of income at those inflated home prices that we saw 20 years ago, uh, 15 years ago. And, and, and so that got a little bit messed up. Um, but I think it may be back to being more of a leading indicator today uh, because the other component to housing and real estate uh, is it's a confidence measure, right? For the vast majority of people, um, buying a home is the single largest investment they'll ever make in their lives, right? It, it's hundreds of thousands of dollars. Uh, you're making an investment. Obviously, you're not paying for it at once. You're going to pay it down over 30 years. Um, but you have to be confident in your in your situation. You have to be confident in your personal life, your income, your job, um, the community you're in to put down those roots. Uh, and it's not that you can't offload that investment. It's just that when you have to offload that investment, it comes with some paperwork and a couple thousand dollars and closing costs or whatever the case may be. And so um, it, 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 it's not an entirely liquid investment. And obviously it's a big physical structure. And so, so I think that component, the interest rate sensitivity nature of housing and real estate more broadly, coupled with the confidence that you need to buy, um, makes makes it uh, in, in, indicative of people's behavior and, and, and certainly an important part of the economy overall. Yeah, I mean, I you know, I certainly couldn't agree more. I mean, interest rates are, you know, a major signal to I think you know certainly housing, but all sectors on you know pricing. I think risk to some degree. Um, you know, with all this, you know, essentially expansion of the money supply. Um, and all these dollars kind of floating out there, um, there being some global attitudes about, you know, the dollar being the world reserve currency is losing some favor. You know, one of the things I remember kind of early on when this pandemic was unfolding is the Fed, at least for the first time, to my knowledge, and maybe they had done this before, had even started to whisper about the idea of negative interest rates, which, you know, other countries have done, like Japan and things like that. Do you foresee that being a tool that they implement in, you know, uh, in response to what's going on here over the next couple of years? Do you think that's just, you know, we're pretty far from that type of scenario? I don't think we're that, I don't think we have been that far from that type of scenario if you look at the last 10 years. Um, I think there's there's a couple of key reasons that I'm not as fully well-versed on. That the Federal Reserve is very anti, they've been very public in saying they are not doing negative interest rates. But of course, um, it is a well-regarded policy in the academic literature. We've seen other countries do it in the like. So I, I wouldn't say we'll never do it in the U.S. Uh, if we need to. But but the, the 
you know, from the money market um, uh, funds and, and a variety of other reasons, the Fed has been very vocal in saying they're not going to do it. But you know, of course, that could change um, next next cycle or, or some point in the future. So I, I think it's hard pressed to say we'll never do it, but um, we haven't yet in the U.S. And, and they're they've been telegraphing that they don't want to do it. And so I think the broader risk, though, um, yes, there's a potential for some inflation. Then particularly next year, as incomes are doing relatively well, there's a ton of household savings, uh, mostly among high-income earners, of course, high-income households. Um, if all of that spending is unleashed next year, um, then you could see certainly some stronger inflationary pressures than we've become accustomed to in recent decades. Now, it's probably a relatively temporary phenomenon uh, and not a sustained uh, outbreak of inflation on an ongoing basis. Uh, and, and, and so that's something else to keep in mind regarding regarding that. I don't know if I answered that question entirely. No, no, I know. I think you did. I mean, it's just we're just trying to get perspective on it. I mean, again, you know, people get concerned, um, you know, about interest rates and, you know, with the way that consumer debt, you know, I mean, just the American people are heavily burdened by debt, whether it's student loans or credit card debt or otherwise. And, you know, housing is obviously a big driver, like you said. And, you know, building construction and housing is a very speculative thing. You know, some places you can, you can, you know, put up housing pretty quickly, even multifamily housing, but you have a place like, you know, Portland or Seattle or San Francisco. I mean, those are five, six, seven year projects. Um, so, you know, people have to be optimistic about, you know, the economy, but also trust interest rates. Um, you know, the other component that you mentioned too is, um, confidence, which is, you know, obviously tied in there. Um, you know, with what's happened with COVID, uh, potential greater need for labor mobility, um, working remotely, uh, and then you just have these generational shifts. I mean, do you think that for the majority of Americans, we're still going to see the home, the primary residence, be the biggest investment they make? Or do you see that maybe instead of homeownership rates being where they are kind of today, which I think sometimes oscillate between like, you know, maybe 55 and 65 percent? Um, do you see that trend kind of reverting and, and people really putting their money elsewhere as, as a primary location? You know, I really don't. Um, not that we shouldn't. Uh, but in the U.S., right, we, we've set up our system such that homeownership uh, for the vast majority of folks is really the only, the only way to build wealth. Um, yes, you have a 401k and the like. Uh, but you're only going to accumulate a couple hundred thousand dollars in that at max, um, based on based on patterns we've seen uh, in in recent decades. And so um, the home is is the primarily the only source of wealth for uh, households in the lower and middle parts of the income distribution. Um, and and so I think that will continue. I think the demographics are fantastic for home ownership, right? Um, with the millennials aging into their prime home buying years. And on the flip side, we don't really see any downsizing, right? Downsizing is basically a myth in the aggregate housing market data. Of course, individuals downsize. Of course, people move for retire after they retire. Sometimes they'll buy a condo in a big city. Sometimes they won't. Um, but in the aggregate data, uh, people really age in place. And we don't really see big changes in the way people live until you hit your mid to late 80s. Uh, and then, of course, in your mid to late 80s, the shift in your housing situation is you're getting you're moving out of your home and into a nursing home, and so uh, that's in the aggregate statistics. That's really what you see, um, and and so that's something else to keep in mind for why I think real estate will continue to do well uh, is we have this big surge of 
millennials entering into their 30s and their 40s. Uh, at the same time, the baby boomers are still in their 60s and their 70s and not at the point um, where they'll be forced out of their homes for health reasons. Well, you know, for those who want to invest in real estate, that's great news. Um, we're going to take a quick moment um, to get a word from our sponsors. So we're going to take a quick break and we will be right back. Sleep Sound Property Management is a full-service, professional management company serving the Portland metro and Vancouver area. We give our clients back their most valuable asset, time. By delegating your property management, you'll be able to focus on what you do best while minimizing your liability and maximizing your return. Learn how we can help at sleepsoundpm.com. And we're back. Uh, Welcoming again, uh, Josh Lanner. He's going to talk to us a little bit more as we kind of wrap things up about the economic forecast here for 2021. You know, Josh, one of the things that I thought was really interesting, you described this 2020 economic shift as being more like a natural disaster than some bubble bursting or some uh, market caused significant drop. Can you break that down a little bit and just kind of explain what you mean there? Yeah, the key thing is that it happened overnight, right? It came upon us overnight. And, and and that's kind of like what happens in a natural disaster where everything's fine. And then suddenly in the middle of the night, there's an earthquake or a flood uh, or a hurricane's coming through. At least with that, we you know, you get a week's head start on, on the hurricane potentially, but you don't know exactly where it's going to landfall. Um, and so, but you go from a strong economy uh, to a, a terrible one immediately. And that's what kind of happened here back in, in March and April. Um, due to the the pandemic sweeping sweeping around the world, and now unfortunately, uh, unlike with a natural disaster, even like a labor strike, when people strike, it's kind of the same sort of thing. Uh, when those are resolved, you get back to a healthy economy almost immediately. When the rebuilding phase after a natural disaster kicks in, it's really uh, only a few months before you get all the way back to where you were. You have to rebuild some homes and fix some bridges, and that takes you know six to twelve months, and that's about it. Here, we're thinking it's going to take a couple of years still. Uh, but again, I think, you know, people are becoming more optimistic and maybe maybe that's even a little a little more pessimistic. Um, it's all about the amount of permanent damage that's done to the economy, how many businesses have to close uh, on a permanent basis and all those layoffs and those workers would have to find new jobs at new firms and, and all that sort of stuff. That's the real risk between now uh, and, and whenever the pandemic is officially over is is, is that permanent damage component that we're worried about. You know, one of the things that I've noticed, it, or, you know, maybe I'm wrong and it's just been in my bubble, um, is that the, the type of jobs that were lost seem to be um, non-career positions. I mean, you look at the people who have long-term careers, obviously there's an impact. If people aren't putting on events, there are professionals that were uh, event planners who, um, you know, are, are still running the risk of potential job loss, but it's really those folks that were working the event, the caterers, uh, the restaurant workers, the, you know, um, you know, cabbies and, and that type of position. Is that kind of what you're seeing as far as the, the, the folks that are, or have lost their jobs? Is that kind of what you're seeing as well? That, that's absolutely true. This is, this is a very, um, unique business cycle in the sense that the vast majority of it is concentrated or localized uh, within a few sectors, bars and restaurants and hotels being the biggest ones among them, nail salons, barber shops, uh, even even public sector stuff related to like convention centers, community centers, zoos, some of that sort of, you know, parks and, and the like, right? The, all those things that require a lot of in-person interaction 
consumer services, uh, that sort of stuff uh, is really where the vast majority of the recession has been focused. And so all those workers, as you're saying, are, are you know, the relatively low wage, if not, you know, the lowest wage paid in, in the entire economy. And so that is another reason why the overall economy is doing better is because of income inequality. The higher income households, those higher paying jobs are doing better because they account for an outsized share of income earned in consumer spending. That means the overall economy is holding up better, uh, but it also kind of masks the severity of the pain uh, for our low-income households. Yeah, that's, you know, it's pretty concerning just to see. I mean, obviously, um, you know, that has a big impact on lifestyle and um, overall sentiment and obviously a big impact on uh, unemployment uh, rates and resources and so forth. So hopefully that that changes. You know, obviously with every single uh, crisis or major event, there's a lot of lessons to be learned um, you know, just from your perspective, you know, do you have any sort of major takeaways, um, you know, from the COVID economy or the COVID impact on the economy that, you know, you think that can be moved forward as, you know, principles or uh, words of wisdom? You know, that's that's tough because every crisis you face um, is a different one, right? Um, obviously, there's a, you know, when there's a drop in consumer demand, that's going to impact a lot of folks, right? There, there's some things that are similar across you know, cycles, uh, but usually the the tip of the spear is always a little bit different. And so trying to plan for that's really challenging. But I think, um, you know, business flexibility and maintaining different avenues of growth, uh, you know, cliche type things are, are really important. I'm thinking about, you know, here in Oregon and across the West, uh, you know, breweries, the smaller breweries, uh, where where the really the biggest benefit to them in recent decades had been on-premise sales, you know, tap rooms where you're selling the pint glasses over the bar at a much higher markup than you can get through the distribution channel at other bars and restaurants with grocery stores. But of course, that got turned on its head, right, where you can't go out to eat like that. And so um, trying to pivot towards other avenues of growth or maintaining some sort of revenues is, is really, really challenging. I don't know if you can plan for that sort of stuff in advance necessarily, uh, but thinking about some of those different things would 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 certainly be certainly be helpful. I think another thing that comes out of this um, is is some basic public research um, is is something that can be helpful in terms of this emergency system management, uh, in terms of funding of research and development. Obviously, on the public health side of things with the vaccines, um, you know, just there's some stuff like that that it always needs to be occurring in the background. And during good times or when you're not facing crisis, it can look like easy things to cut from the public sector and again, get rid of some of these parts of the budget. Uh, but there's, of course, there's a reason those are there in the first place. It's not just government bloat necessarily. It's, it's also there's, there's some underlying research opportunities that can help aid in a crisis uh, whenever it comes. Yeah, that makes sense. Do you have any concerns? I mean, I think that one thing that, you know, a big, big question mark is, is, you know, we've seen an acceleration in the number of businesses that had to adapt to, you know, having a remote team. And many of these businesses have found it to be easier than I think when they first imagined, especially with a lot of the technology that's available. Um, obviously, you know, there are some major industries, tech industries that are making kind of headlines about, you know, kind of reverting to that long term. But one of the concerns I think, you know, is maybe being overlooked and it'd be interesting to get your perspective on this is just, you know, it's flattening the world a little bit more. And if your job really can be done remotely, you know, who's to say that somebody from an international standpoint isn't able to do that position at a lower cost? 
Um, so I'm wondering if maybe there are certain professions that might be at higher risk or how that might impact the economy, you know, um, over the long run. Absolutely. I think I think that's probably maybe an, uh, an aspect of telework or working from home that people aren't really discussing is the potentiality for offshoring. Right. And I know um, in chatting with some folks in legal services and, and, and you know, attorneys and the like, um, they've already outsourced some of that paralegal type work. To, to junior positions overseas, you know, in recent decades. So, so that sort of thing where you think about, you know, higher paying white collar jobs can also be um, moved around the, the world, uh, integrated, you know, commerce with, with more telework and working from home potential. Um, I, I am not, I'm probably a little bit more pessimistic on working from home um, than the typical economist. Uh, I think it's, it traditionally, is a small slice of the economy. You know, there's up to about one in three workers can theoretically work from home. Now, I think we breached that boundary back in April and May, uh, just because you were sending home everyone and trying to just get some sort of work done and, and manage through the pandemic. But already we've seen about a third of the workers being recalled to the offices already this year, uh, which is really surprising considering um, the pandemic has gotten worse and not better uh, since the spring. And so uh, the fact that about a third of those workers have already gone back to the office, uh, that points to me that that uh, working from home and teleworking will not be this big, massive game changer that people maybe mm-hmm. thought it was even, even six months ago. And so uh, it's clearly a, a perk for employees. I think the key decision point, and it's going to vary by business, the key decision point will be uh, can you work remotely 100% of the time, which then frees people up to live wherever they want to live, right? Whether it's in, in Boise or in Denver or in, in Des Moines or wherever the case may be, you can, you can live wherever you want if you're 100% remote. Uh, whereas if it's just really you can work from home two or three or four days a week, but you still have to be in the office once a week, um, that really means you're still limited to the same the same communities that you were in the first place. You're just not going into the office every day. You're doing it once a week or twice a month or, or whatever the case may be. So I think I think that's going to be the key decision point. Is working from home really an employee perk or is it a new way of life? Uh, and and you can count me on the pessimism pessimistic side there from a from a macroeconomic perspective. You know, uh, Josh, do you have so you know obviously you're more uh, studied on the numbers than a majority of people. Certainly I would say, um, more than a lot of, uh, real estate investors, right? So what I would want to know is there in the Western United States or, you know, beyond is fine too. Is there a specific market or area of growth or some type of opportunity potential that you kind of see as being, um, a target or, um, if you, we're investing in real estate and you saw some opportunity for, for uh, stability and growth in, in a specific area over the next five to 10 years. Do you see any area like that that kind of stands out to you? I think if you were talking just in the next five years, you would look, I would look at current demographics, current age structure. Where has a bunch of 25 and 30 year olds or 30, 30, you know, somewhere in that 25 to 34 year old range. Those are traditionally what are called uh, your root setting years. That's when you really start to settle down, begin your career in earnest, um, you know, get married, have kids, buy a house. All that stuff still kind of happens then. Of course, it's a it's a couple years later today than it was, you know, a generation or two ago uh, that, that people are doing these sort of things. But I think, that, you know, from a 
particularly from a real estate perspective, that's going to be the key because those people aren't moving, right? Once, you, but by the time you're, you know, someplace in your your mid twenties, it's rare that you're going to move again. You're going to set down those roots, and so places that have strong underlying demographic trends today are still going to have those five years from now. Now, if you're starting to look out 10, 20, 30 years from now, it's going to be really uh, where where you expect those migration patterns to go. And, and traditionally, those migration patterns have all been to the west and the south in the country. We have a little bit of a unique pattern on the west coast where the patterns of migration are north, out of California into Oregon and Washington, and then out of Oregon into Washington a little bit. Although those Oregon to Washington flows are predominantly people just moving across the river, going from Portland to Vancouver, just on the other side of the, the river, which is a suburban, which is mostly a suburban play, although a little bit of a tax structure play as well. Um, that's a little bit of a different pattern than you see elsewhere in the country. But by and large, you know, I, I don't expect a wide uh, disparities in those broad strokes. Now, does that mean, you know, Reno or Boise is going to see stronger growth 20 years from now. You know, I'm not I'm not one to speculate on that, uh, particularly because that's not my state right now. But, um, you know, that sort of thing is going to be a little take a little bit more work and it's going to kind of be up to to individuals who they think will see stronger population growth trends. Excellent. Okay. So um, are there any other takeaways that you have before we, we, we're going to transition in, into a couple questions we have for you personally, but are there any other takeaways from the year of COVID that you would say, hey, you know, th- this has really resonated with me or this is, um, you know, one of the things, for instance, from my perspective um, is how much we as a community and as individuals can take, right? I mean, how much of an adaptation, how quickly it happened, uh, that was one major takeaway for me. The other one is how important kids going to school is and uh, how much I personally would have wished that we had a, a different focus on getting those kids in school. So those the, those are kind of two major takeaways for me. Is, is there anything either economic or personal for you um, that was really a takeaway in 2020? I think this has also shown that um, the economy is incredibly dynamic. And, and yeah, we've, we've seen some business closures. We're going to see more. Um, but the ability for, for bars and restaurants to pivot to takeout only, uh, the increase in delivery services, uh, shift in e-commerce sales more broadly, right? Like that, some of this stuff was long-term trends anyway, the rise of Amazon over the course of decades and, and um, big box retailers doing more e- e-commerce and the like. But they, I think it's important to keep in mind that, that we have an incredibly dynamic economy where businesses are much more nimble than we give them credit for. And so I think that has also been uh, a key propeller of stronger economic growth so far this year than, than maybe we would have feared even back in back in April. And so I think uh, in addition to the things you're talking about um, would be something to keep in mind is that I think business owners have done an incredible job, even though they're struggling, they've, they've done an incredible job in trying to pivot and, and keep sales um, uh, it, it, you know, as high as possible. Yeah, I mean, it's been definitely a roller coaster ride, I can tell you on our end. And, you know, you throw in just compounding regulation and it just is like a tailspin. But, um, yeah, I've been really surprised with the resiliency and certainly from the restaurant industry, which has had a major, <laughs> major adjustment. But um, as Matt said, you know, we're going to transition to learn a little bit more uh, about you personally. You know, we like to kind of find out more about our guests. It helps uh, people you know, better understand you and where you're coming from. And so I'm going to kick that off with one of our uh, questions here. Um, you know, can you maybe tell us about an important ritual you have and do every day? Uh, probably the most important thing I do every day is I um, 
we have one of those coffee makers, the grind and brews where you put in the whole beans. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and I set that up at night and then it goes in the morning at the same time. Right. And that's kind of the starts the household day. Um, the kids are usually up before then, but they're, they're not that quiet, but they're trying to play in their rooms or something. Right. And so, uh, that really gets the day going is that, that the coffee maker lacks, makes the loud noise. Uh, and then of course that helps wake my wife and I up by, by drinking it. <laughs> nice. Well, that sounds like a good, uh, good habit there. Um, another one would be is, you know, how do you measure success? Oh man. Um, I think professional and personal success is wildly different. Um, per- professional success can be the accuracy of our forecast. It can be the way, um, our reports are received or the feedback we get from policymakers. You know, I think that stuff's fairly easy. Personal success is a lot harder. Um, just, you know, uh, having a young family, having a spouse, things like that, you know, it, it can be, uh, it, it can be challenging the ups and the downs. And so I don't, I don't know exactly how you, how you measure success on that front, but you hope, um, you hope that, you know, you you raise, you raise kids to be decent human beings. That's going to be the ultimate gauge of success, I think, uh, in the years ahead for me. Yeah. Great. Awesome. Yeah. You, thanks very much for coming in. I really appreciate it. I mean, this has given me a lot, a lot of perspective. Um, the other question I would have for you is if you could have dinner with one person dead or alive, who would it be? Wow. Um, <laughs> it's not an easy question. No, I, you know, I, I'm tempted to go with, um, you know, more of a, I don't know, a sports hero or a musician that I, I, I've been very, you know, personally, um, touched by over the years, just in terms of that, something like that, that'd be more fun than, than, than the basically the historic weight of having dinner with Abraham Lincoln or, or something like that. Right. I think that would be just too much. So, you know, I'll go with, I'll go with a current, I'll go with my current hero, which is Patrick Mahomes, uh, you know, just hanging out with him, uh, would be, would be a lot of fun just because the, the chiefs have meant so much to me as a boy from the plains over the decades. So. Nice. Nice. Excellent. And if you had to choose between whiskey and wine, which would it be? Uh, I would go with uh, scotch, but yeah, so, so certainly bourbon and, and whiskey. Nice. All right. Well, hey, you know, uh, Josh, we really appreciate uh, you coming in. Is there anything else um, that our audience um, needs to know or any other, any other takeaways or, you know, perhaps also how, how could they get a hold of you if they needed to? Yes. Um, you know, I'm always happy to, to chat uh, about the economy or the outlook or the data. If you have any questions about the data, that's kind of the role that, that we play. And so um, give, me, give me an email. Um, follow us along on our, our Twitter account or our blog, um, OregonEconomicAnalysis.com. I'm happy to chat anytime. Great. Well, thank you very much for joining us today. If you find this show valuable, we have two favors to ask. The first is please subscribe to our podcast. And the second, would you please give us a review? The more subscribers and the more reviews, the better the show and the better the guests. Until next time, invest in the West. Mm